Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. Last year marked 25 years since the first Pride March. You know, we've come a long way since then. And the 2020 Virtual Pride Week saw communities all over the island raising that rainbow flag that's become a symbol for pride all over the world. We've definitely made progress, but we're not done yet. Today's episode is all about the 2S LGBTQIA community on Prince Edward Island, focusing on the history and what it's like today for members of the community. Content warning that this episode contains homophobic slurs and mentions of sexual assault. A lot's changed in the past 26 years and I met up with Nola Atkin to talk about recent queer history on PEI. Nola moved to the island in 1997. Hi, I'm Nola Atkin, and I've lived in PEI for 23 years now. I was one of the founding co-chairs of Abergrit Rainbow Collective, and I'm faculty member at UPI and currently the Dean of Science at UPI. If you haven't heard of the Abergrit Rainbow Collective, we'll get into that in a little bit. First, I wanted to talk about Nola's experiences before coming to the island. Nola grew up in Montreal, but she's lived in other large cities like Edmonton, Alberta, and Windsor, Ontario. So coming to PEI in 1997, at the time there was three provinces left that did not have human rights protection. PEI, Newfoundland, and Alberta. There were some similarities, but you know some really major differences. So in Alberta, there was a lot more services. There were gay bars, there was some long-standing gay and lesbian community center, and, you know, there was campus groups, there, there was a, you know, there had been pride parades for quite a number of years. So it was a very active community, but Alberta itself was ultra-conservative. I experienced certainly you know, a significant level of harassment there in terms of I was very active. I was co-chairing the the campus LGBT group and our events would get, you know, people would come and and hassle people or, you know, yell insults and we always had to have security. We would have hateful messages on our phone line, some really bad stuff, you know, comparable to, you know, talking about the, the Holocaust and one very memorable one being that, you know, all gays and lesbians should be burned in the ovens like they were in Auschwitz. <laughs> it was pretty bad. So there was a lot of really harsh negative backlash to anything we tried to do. Most of it, you know, I was I was a young student. I was, you know, newly out. I was at the university, you know, somewhat protected from it. So I wouldn't say that I experienced a whole lot of direct harassment there was there was some but it was certainly there it was not a feeling of safety and a feeling of you know people being nice in general so when I came here in 1997 I'd say you know it was with a bit of trepidation I you know I grew up in in a large city I had moved to progressively smaller places you know Edmonton and Windsor but coming here The province is smaller than the smallest city I had lived in. (laughs) There was really nothing organized that was visible. So the first thing I did when I came here for a job interview was uh, I looked in the phone book under gay, and there was an information line, and I called that number, and it was out of service. 
What a warm welcome that must have been. Remember just a few minutes ago I said it's been 26 years since the first Pride March? Let me backtrack by saying that sure, there'd been a Pride March in 1994, but it wasn't met with the same enthusiasm by the public as the ones today are. Well, there was a couple of Pride marches in, I think, 95, 94, 95, 96 in that time. That was before I came here, but I have a lot of friends who were there. They were not parades. They were really protest marches, and there was a lot of negative reaction to those. So I remember hearing stories of you know, rotten fruit being thrown at the, the people who were marching. When Nola came to PEI three years later, she said the community almost seemed stagnant, at least from an outsider's perspective. What I learned was that in 1997, there used to be dances, but they weren't having them anymore. There used to be a women's music festival, but that was on hiatus. There had been a couple of pride parades, uh, protest marches really, not parades, um, but those weren't happening anymore. So there was really nothing organized. So you can imagine how much uncertainty she'd have about coming here in the first place. Oh, and did I mention that she didn't really know anyone living on the island when she decided to move? Let alone anyone from the queer community? So I got on a Usenet group, which basically is a message board, and there was one called can.mots. So mots is members of the same sex. It was a kind of a code word for gay, because if anything that said gay or lesbian would get a lot of very negative postings. So I got on there and said, you know, is there anyone in PEI? And I was contacted by two men who lived here, and both of them put me in touch with the same woman who lived here and worked at UPI. So I was in touch with three people before I came here. Ah, the internet in the 90s. I can't say I was around for that, but I do remember those MSN chat rooms of the mid-2000s. But that's a side note. Once Nola was living on the island, she was welcomed into a really close-knit community that held potluck dinners and informal gatherings often. But there was still no public organization on the island. Nola helped change that with some people she knew. Really just a few months after I came, the Human Rights Act was opened for review. It wasn't so much that they were interested in offering protection to you know, the gays and lesbians. It was really about political patronage, issues around that. So the Human Rights Act was opened for the first time in, in nearly a decade. And there was a standing committee that was set to review submissions. There was quite a number of submissions around sexual orientation. And we formed a group, which at the time we just called the Gay Lesbian Coalition of PEI. And it was an informal group that got together. And we prepared a submission. And it wasn't the first time, 10 years before, there had been a submission from a group called the Lesbian Coalition, but at the time they were not successful in having the Human Rights Act changed. By the late 1990s, every province had changed the Human Rights Act to include sexual orientation, except PEI. We were the final province to hold out against this. So it was very clear that, you know, we had the law on our side, and... Uh, we were successful. So in 1998, finally, the PI Human Rights Act was changed. And that was the first step and a necessary step, but in terms of making changes in the lives of people, there were still no services. There were still no supports, really, or very, very few supports. So about a year later, a group of us came together, and we were supported by AIDS PEI, which is now 
Peers Alliance, you know, they gave us a space and they gave us some financial support. So a group of us came together. You know, we used to meet at the old Dublin pub and play trivia and plan to change the world. And we, <laughs> we did. We created Abigail Rainbow Collective. In late 1999, we had our first dance, which was at McLaughlin's in the basement. And we had, I don't know, about 100 or 120 people at that first dance, which was really quite unheard of, but it really showed that there was um, such a need for what we could offer. We started a new telephone support line. We had it as an 800 number, so we actually used to get calls from across Canada for support, but you know, primarily from PEI. And in those days, we would staff it a couple of evenings a week, and we'd have a lot of people calling in. Again, there wasn't, you know, the internet wasn't what it is today. So people still chose to uh, make phone calls to find support. And the goals uh, of Abigail Rainbow Collective were advocacy, support, and education. And we did all of that. The first full Pride Week came in August 2000. There wasn't a parade that year, but they held a rally and a dance at the Delta. And I remember people saying, you can't go to the Delta because it's above ground and people just won't go. It's too visible. And that was from within the queer community at the time. There was so much fear. And we said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Our first dances at the Delta, we would routinely get 200 people. That first Pride dance, I think we had four or 500 people in the ballroom. There was a real thirst for that kind of social network and support. Nola was also quick to recognize that while community support for 2S LGBTQIA plus people increased through the Abigail Rainbow Collective, a lot of laws still hadn't changed by the early to mid-2000s. For example, PEI was one of the last provinces to allow same-sex marriage. Nola remembers fighting to have her partner's name on their daughter's birth certificate after she was born in 2007. At the time, the definition of parent was meant to include only a man and a woman. That changed in 2009, by which time Nola's second daughter had already been born. Their children were among the first on PEI to have two mothers on their birth certificate. The Abigail Rainbow Collective was disbanded in 2014 and Pride PEI took over shortly afterwards. Pride PEI is the organization responsible for the yearly Pride celebrations on the island. Now, what we've mainly talked about so far is sexual orientation, which has clearly accomplished some milestones in the past 26 years. But according to Nola, gender diversity isn't quite at the same place yet. I'd say where we were around sexual orientation 20 years ago is kind of where we are now with gender identity and you know, our changing understanding of what gender means. And many young people are dealing with challenges around the gender identity now. And that's, I think, because of the groundwork that was laid 20 years ago that we're able to make, you know, inroads there. So my name's Rory Starkman. I'm a non-binary trans individual. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm 31 years old. That's Rory, someone who's helping shape Islanders' views of gender and sexuality through their work with Peers Alliance as the Youth Services Coordinator. Peers Alliance engages, supports, and educates all Islanders on issues related to sexual health and harm reduction in the context of drug use. For listeners that aren't quite sure what non-binary means, someone who is non-binary doesn't fully identify as a man or woman. Non-binary people sometimes use they-them pronouns, but it all depends on the person and how they identify. 
it's funny because if we're talking about how generally OPEI is maybe 20 years behind the gender thing and like getting there with the sexuality thing, go up west and it's like, okay, 50 years behind on the gender thing and like 20 years behind on the sexuality thing and like Jesus is the front runner. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude. I just think that like a lot of the issues that come out are usually in the rural areas. Before you tell me not everyone is like that, I understand it's a generalization and so does Rory. But it rings with truth. For example, the Alberton Council unanimously agreed not to fly the pride flag in 2019 because they'd gotten complaints against it. For the record, there were many residents who stepped up and bought flags to put all over town to show their support. However, it's clear that homophobia is obviously present enough to let something like that happen in the first place. Rory wasn't born on the island, but has been here for a few years now. After initially coming out as non-binary, they went back to Toronto, which is where they're from, because they thought they'd have a better queer community in a larger city. Very quickly, while in Toronto, I kind of realized, like, oh, I just did what every other queer islander does, which is leave the island for a city centre to find community. And it was interesting because going back to Toronto, I actually felt more isolated. And so I ended up coming back here with the specific goal of helping to create more queer community here so that less people would feel like me, and I had heard countless stories of other islanders, and not just islanders, but people from different rural places who, like, queer folks from rural places tend to end up in city centers because there's no community for them. I met up with a few different queer islanders to ask about their experiences, and they echoed what Rory said. Two people I interviewed both felt they had to leave the island to embrace their identity. First, I talked to Luke a 24-year-old who doesn't want his last name on the podcast, about his experiences coming out to his family. My parents come from very traditional families. Being gay when they were growing up was associated with pedophilia. It's in, it's in the same category. And so I was scared of family ramifications and, and what could happen. When did you come out to your family? 18. 18. What was that like? <sighs> a long and painful experience, but... It needed to be done, and it was, like most Irish Canadian families, you don't talk about emotion, you keep that down. And so talking about uh, your feelings or any of those sorts of difficult subjects, you, you keep your head down and you keep going. I was very nervous. My father is very, very religious. I feared what would happen. So uh, it, was a, it was stated, it was addressed, and it was done with. It was never okay, let's return to a secondary conversation. It was stated, there was anger, there was hurt, there was all those emotions, but then it wasn't spoken about for years. It, it, little snippets of boiling anger might come out about something, but a proper conversation didn't happen until this year. So we're looking at, you know, six years later, yeah. Do you think you tried to just pretend it didn't happen? Oh, definitely. There was definitely conversations about pray the gay away. That was an option, well, perceived option. But yeah, so there, there was always seen to be some kind of alternative to fix it or ignore it, move from it. They thought I was confused at first, and so I was encouraged not to say it openly or publicly to anyone else. And I think I told you that story once briefly about how I was told not to tell my extended family, at least. And I went out being a rebellious 19-year-old 
got a tattoo on me for the gay rights symbol on my ankle. And so I would wear shorts all that summer. And I, I wasn't telling my extended family, but if they asked, I could just say it's a gay rights symbol. Members of Luke's family didn't take the news well. My family said, if I am going to live openly as gay, I, I shouldn't do that here, or I was encouraged to leave. So I took a year abroad earlier than I wanted to when I was at UPI, and I went to England. And I came home after a year, and I was more confident, I was more comfortable. But it was known and openly known then uh, with people I went to school with at that point. The rumors, rumors fly pretty quick around here. Gossip does. Luke also talked about internalized homophobia which is what happens when we take those negative opinions and preconceptions society has about queer people and we turn them inward so they become part of our own thought process. He mentioned how it made him not want to accept being gay and how it impacted when he reached out for professional help after a sexual assault. When I was 16, I was actually assaulted. It was someone I trusted. It was someone I cared for. It was someone I went in very consensually with, which turned very non-consensually very, very quickly requiring surgery by the damage he inflicted. But what happens is I waited till I was 18 to go through any surgical procedure, putting myself at great risk because there was shame. That shame was with me for eight years. That shame and trauma has shaped my development from being, taking me away from the person I was supposed to be. And I think I'm moving out of that, thankfully. But more needs to be spoken openly about it. You can't just say it's fine and dandy, they can live their life however they want. That seems to be the approach that a lot of people have here, but they won't talk about it. And if young people don't know, there's a shame attached. Well, why is it a taboo subject? So that's what I faced growing up, and, and I'm just hoping it doesn't happen to the younger generation, and thankfully it's looking like it's changing. I also talked to Amanda Creamer. If that name sounds familiar to you, it should. She was one of the interviews on the last podcast episode, Where Are the Women? Here's her story. I mean, everyone has their individual experiences, but I didn't really kind of know I was gay until I was like 17 or 18. It took a long time to figure out. I just thought I was a late bloomer. <laughs> no partners of any kind up until that point. And when I figured it out, it, I had a really, really hard time. Not even so much like directly the people around me or my family or anything like that. Well, I guess that plays into it. But just like I think internalized homophobia played a huge part in that. And I really struggled with like my mental health when I first decided to come out. It was, uh, it was a pretty hard time. Yeah. Can I ask how long ago that was? Yeah, so I am 30 now, so it would be like, well, I came out at 19, so yeah, 11 years ago. I uh, I had to move away for a while. Like I said, I, I struggled really hard when I first came out. Couldn't couldn't really deal with it. You know, I felt like I couldn't really be me. Um, PEI is such a small place, right? You're friends with the same people forever, which is beautiful in its own way. But then uh, as you get older, you kind of want to like stretch a little bit and, you know, explore like the other sides of yourself that you haven't really gotten to explore so, you know, being gay and from here and having the same friends forever, I was just like, I just want to try being more me, you know, like, and the people around me didn't seem ready for that. So I, uh, I moved away for a year. I went to a big city. I went to London, England. And yeah, just like tried on some different versions of me and to see which fit best. And I felt like that was probably the best thing I could do. I, I just got so much more self-confidence. I came back and I finished my degree and I uh, I got involved um, with the Abigail Rainbow Collective, I think it was called. 
and just yeah met other queer people from the island and you know just kind of was like unapologetic about who I was at that point because I just didn't care anymore still ran into people that were you know not particularly nice like a little bit homophobic but I mean it was a lot easier to deal with when I was okay with who I was now as she said that was 11 years ago I asked what it's been like since then, and to what extent she feels homophobia still exists on this island. I'm a pretty reclusive person now. I own a property in the middle of the woods and don't go out that often, especially with COVID. haven't seen that many people. I have a long-term partner. We've been dating since almost 10 years now, which is crazy. But yeah, I would say, yeah, there's definitely looks. We're turned down for an apartment once on shaky reasoning, you know, just stuff like that. It's it's subtle, but it exists, definitely. I think we have a lot of ways to go. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, PEI is an island, and I think we've always been slow to change. We're always a little bit behind the curve on a lot of things, whether it's like fashion or, <laughs> you know, getting the automobile, you know, like we've struggled over time to accept change. And I think it's the same today. It's changing, but it's going to take probably generations, I guess, to, to catch up completely. But I, I, you know, I think it is getting better. And it's, I love to see kids graduating high school and stuff. And it's just a totally different reality. And that's, you know, it's only been a decade since I did the same. And uh, I think it's changed a lot. So it's promising. As you can tell, the 2S LGBTQIA plus history on this island has weight to it. There's been so many achievements and milestones in the past 26 years since the first Pride March in 1994. But there's also been a lot of struggle and pain that's been a heavy weight to bear for many in the community. And to ignore that is to miss a crucial part of the story. I asked Rory where we as Islanders should go next. There's a lot of savior mentality when it comes to queer folks because a lot of the times the tools that we use to get people to care our statistics about how marginalized we are, how oppressed we are, how many of us die by suicide, how many of us have mental health issues, how many of us have substance abuse issues. It's those stories that seem to get people to care, but it's also those stories that keep a lot of us down because it's all we hear about too. And so it's really, really nice to see and hear more empowerment narratives. I didn't know what empowerment narratives were for trans or queer people for a while because when I was growing up, all the movies that you saw queer people in, they were either being abused or killing themselves or being killed. Most of the things you hear in the news is about queer people being abused or killing themselves or being killed. I think that the empowerment narratives right now are so much more important because if cisgender and heterosexual people aren't going to appreciate the empowerment stories and are only going to care about trans rights, gay rights, human rights, if, if we tell them the sob stories and tell them how much we're dying, I don't think that that's going to end up anywhere good for us because we will just keep expecting to die. And so it's, it's that really strange balance of how do you get people to care, but also live your best life and be yourself. When Rory said that, it really stuck with me. I got thinking about all the movies, music videos, and TV shows I watched, and the way that people from the queer community are usually portrayed. 
In fact, I watched a music video last week featuring two women, and the whole time I kept waiting for something terrible to happen to one of them, because that's what I was used to seeing. When the video ended with the two women happily in love and happily together, I was shocked. It was incredible to see an empowerment narrative like that, because it's something a viewer can look at and say, I want that kind of story in my life, without feeling the violence or the fear that so often accompanies these stories. When I finished my interview with Rory, I asked them if they had any final thoughts, messages, or words that they didn't get a chance to say for my questions. Here's what Rory said. There are some people who, so for instance, when we launched the Rainbow Hub, there are some stupid people in the comment section being like, why? Why do you even need this? It seems silly that, you know, people can have their different community places. You know, you can go to the Legion, you can go play sports, you can go do these other things. So why not give folks a place where they know it's a safe space to go? And yeah, I mean, I feel like... I could say something like, oh, a message to the straight people or a message to the cishets. I don't have messages for them because they're not who I want to work for or they're not who I want to do the work for. But I think if anyone who is maybe listening to this, who's at home, alone, young and queer or older and queer and doesn't feel like they can come out or doesn't feel like anyone else is like them here... I think the only thing I would add is just that I want those people to not feel like they're alone because there is so much support and especially with COVID right now, like figuring out these different ways to connect online has been really, really important, especially for folks who are in situations where they can't come out. And so, and not that everything is about coming out, but I just want everybody to know that they're not alone and... They can be whoever they want to be, and even though sometimes that's hard, I think that we are making strides in the right direction. I'm going to put some resources in this episode description for Peers Alliance and Pride PEI. Whether you want support, want to get involved, or want to learn to be a better ally, feel free to check those out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy it, please check out the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation on our social media and our website at peimuseum.ca. I'll add in too that we are a not-for-profit organization, so if you want to buy a membership or donate, we really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone in this episode who so openly shared their stories with me and trusted me to tell them right. And a final shout out to Adam Glant, who's responsible for our intro music. Thanks for joining, and I'll talk to you next time on The Hidden Island.